Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon, where you're going to learn more than you'll ever hear in regular Sunday school. This is the second episode in this series, and this year we're in the Come Follow Me manual, lesson two, regarding the Book of Mormon. Let me show you the opening slide that I have. It says Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon. There's a nice star up there in the upper left-hand corner. There's a two in that star, and that two signifies that this is the second lesson. For this year, it's the Come Follow Me manual, as it says there in the bottom right of the screen. Book of Mormon, the material to be covered is 1 Nephi, chapters 1 through 5, lesson number 2, covering January 8th through 15th of 2024. All right, so let's get into tonight's lesson. I'm excited to get into the Book of Mormon once again. It's been a while. I have read it 20, probably more than 30 times, although the last time I read it through has been a while ago. So this is going to be a great refresher and a lot of fun for me. I hope it's a lot of fun for you. So the lesson manual itself ends up giving what I think may be the oxymoron of the year. And if this holds, that would be amazing to hit oxymoron of the year when you're still in January and you're only on lesson two. We'll see if this remains the oxymoron of the year in the manual. This is the actual language from the manual as opposed to the Book of Mormon itself. As you probably know, definition of an oxymoron is a figure of speech in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. And this is what I'm talking about and referring to in the Come Follow Me manual for lesson number two. It leads into it as follows. As you read 1 Nephi 3 through 4, once again, this is quoting from the manual, look for the variety of difficulties Nephi encountered. How did the Lord prepare a way for Nephi to accomplish the thing which he commanded. Why is it important for you to know what the Lord did for Nephi? And now the line from the manual, which I've highlighted in a different color. Here it goes, oxymoron of the year. One powerful way that God has prepared us to keep his commandments is by sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. I want to spend just a little bit of time with that sentence, because it strikes me as being somewhat of an oxymoron. And maybe I can only see this now that I'm a bit removed from the bubble of Mormonism, but maybe you can already see what it is I'm talking about. Why is it that in Mormonism, Jesus Christ's role as Savior seems to have been reduced largely to setting an example for us of complete submission of our will to God, like Jesus did, right? He completely submitted his will to God, and therefore he becomes our perfect example of how we should submit our will to God. The only more in twist involved is that it is the prophet and president of the LDS church, i.e. the Mormon church, who's the guy who speaks for God. So this ends up meaning, once you actually have the rubber hit the road, what it means is that we follow Jesus by submitting our wills to the president of the LDS church. I think I made a couple of those comments in the next slide here. Yeah, and this was Paul Toscano. He was on a recent episode of Mormonism Live where he made this point as well. In Mormonism, Jesus has become not so much the savior of the world as he is the example that we are to look for, to look to for complete submission to the will of God and God's prophet. We know God's will only through proper priesthood channels, right? So it has to be through. God's prophet, and pretty much any priesthood holder that is between us 
and God's prophet in the hierarchy. I.e., Jesus has become the perfect example of doing everything we are told to do by church leaders. This is how Jesus ends up being used quite frequently in the LDS church. And I think this is an example of just exactly that sort of thing in the manual itself. So let's go to this next part. One other problem with this passage, people who keep the commandments don't need a savior. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. People who keep the commandments don't need a savior in the first place. The only reason Jesus was provided as a ransom for many is because we can't keep the commandments. If we could keep the commandments, we wouldn't need a savior. So let me go back to that one passage and read it once again from the manual. One powerful way that God has prepared us to keep his commandments is by sending Jesus Christ to be our savior. Okay. Now we're not going to get deep into this, into the soteriology of the Book of Mormon and of Mormonism and soteriology is just the $5 word for the study of salvation, how it's brought about, how are we saved? What do we have to do? What does God do? What does God do? What does Jesus do? All that stuff. I expect we'll get into it more in other chapters later this year in the Book of Mormon, but we're going to be talking for the rest of the time during class about one particular story that's contained in the first five chapters of the Book of Mormon. And that story is Nephi murdering Laban. Nephi murders Laban in 1 Nephi chapter 4. And the first thing that's really amazing about the manual is that the Come Follow Me manual completely omits this story. There is nothing in the Come Follow Me manual. Once again, it's been condensed down to one manual for all people in the church to study at home and at church. There's no mention of this story, which I find remarkable. The closest the manual gets to chapter four at all is to reference verse six and only verse six, which says, and I was led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. Well, that's all well and good, but I can't help but notice that that's where they stop. That's the only verse they mention, and they don't even talk about Laban getting beheaded by Nephi on that dark Jerusalem night. Now, this is as close as they get to the story. Once again, I'm going to be quoting from the manual. The scriptures are a great treasure. That's a subheadline within the manual itself, and it goes on. The scriptures were very important to Lehi's family. To illustrate this, you could invite your children to help you tell or act out what Nephi and his brothers did. By the way, my heart stopped when I was reading this <laughs> the first time because I thought, are you really going to have your children act out the murdering of Laban by Nephi? But no. They're not going to act that out. Instead, it says, um, you could invite your children to help you tell or act out what Nephi and his brothers did to get the brass plates. Well, part of that's murdering Laban, right? But that's not what they include. They traveled a long distance, gave up their gold and silver, and hid in a cave to save their lives. Hmm. What could be missing from that list, I wonder? Then you could read 1 Nephi 5.21. Okay, now that's beyond the beheading of Laban. Remember, that's in chapter four. Now we're going to chapter five. Let's get out of chapter four as fa far, fast as we can, according to the manual. Then you could read 1 Nephi 5.21 and talk about why the scriptures were so valuable to Lehi's family. Why are they valuable to us? How can we treat the scriptures like a treasure? And that's the end of the quote from the manual. Well, of course, this whole thing about the scriptures 
is why it was that the Book of Mormon tells us that Nephi had to slay Laban because Laban had the scriptures and he wouldn't give them to Nephi on those brass plates. So that's why they're so valuable or how it is that the Book of Mormon presents us as they're being so valuable that Nephi had to commit murder in order to get them from Laban, who was drunk and in the street and apparently unconscious at the time Nephi stole his sword and beheaded him and put on his clothes and then went and fooled his ser servant Zoram into letting him into the treasury, getting the brass plates and making off with him. Okay. Now, this is interesting to me. They don't mention it here. I'm not saying that they're not going to mention it anywhere in any of their manuals for all time going forward, but I am saying this omission is interesting here, and it seems to follow under the, the Hinckley axiom, which he mentioned in an interview a number of years ago. He was being asked about whether Joseph Smith had ever taught that God was once a man, and his response, instead of just saying, yes, he did, it's called the King Follett Discourse, he says, I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that. And I wonder, is this omission, this glaring omission of the story of Nephi slaying Laban in the very first chapters of the Book of Mormon and in the second lesson of the New Come Follow Me manual? Is this an example of that Hinckley axiom at work? Are they going to not teach it? Are they going to not emphasize that by not mentioning it? And is that what's going on here? My feeling is that that's not enough. In other words, just not mentioning something is not enough. We have to do more as a church to repudiate this story of Nephi slaying Laban, to repudiate this story than simply ignore it, which is what the church seems to do on a regular basis when it wants things to go away. It ignores it and hopes it will go away. We consider the matter closed, right? We have seen where simply ignoring dangerous doctrines can get us, and it's not in a good place. But... Guess what they included at the end of the lesson, okay? After making it a point to say absolutely nothing about Nephi's killing Laban in the body of the lesson, guess what they put at the end of the lesson? They put a picture, and here's the picture. It's a picture. Nephi's about to slay Laban. He's holding the sword up. It's obviously nighttime. There's Laban, who looks younger than I would have thought. He's lying down. He's in a drunken stupor, and Nephi is contemplating killing him and Nephi ultimately will this is this photo was taken just seconds before Nephi actually beheaded Laban and the only thing they have in there about what it is it, it's not even called the slaying of Laban the title of this picture or this painting which is included in the manual is called I did obey the voice of the spirit by Walter Rain so I think it's a great picture I like it but why is this picture of Nephi slaying Laban at the end of the lesson when it doesn't talk about Nephi slaying Laban anywhere in the lesson it's like uh, a compromise was struck, and this was thrown in at the end, sort of as a sop to appease somebody who might have thought that it should be mentioned in the lesson, but got overruled by others. Okay, now I get to tell you a fun story about um, Nephi slaying of Laban. This must have been a dozen years ago, and I'm at church. It's the third hour, back when we had three hours of church, and it was high priest's group and we held that in the chapel so i've got a little picture of the chapel there that's not our chapel but they all kind of look the same and all the high priests are sitting in the pews and it doesn't take all those pews to hold the high priest in my old ward but we're just in there i think it's a, a a summer day i know the instructor joe was up in front of the class he's not on the the podium he's down below teaching us which means reading from the manual by the way when you talk about 
priesthood classes in quorums and groups when it comes to saying that a lesson's being taught, really what it means is the manual's being read. And usually for the first time and only time. So we're in class. And like I said, I think it was um, summer because the teacher, Joe, had his coat off. I remember him being in long shirt sleeves and no coat. So he's teaching the lesson. I have no idea what the lesson was about. But in through one of the side doors comes this young man into high priest group. And that's why I title this like a joke. A guy walks into a high priest group. We didn't know him. He's not a member of the church as far as we knew, not of our ward. He walks in, he sits on the front row, which is completely vacant because nobody sits on the front row. He doesn't have a tie on. He's not dressed like a Mormon. He seems to have come in off the street. And Joe's teaching his lesson, and this guy raises his hand in the front row, and Joe calls on him. And the guy says, is it true that you Mormons believe that it's okay for a guy to behead another person? And isn't that in your Book of Mormon? And Joe, the teacher, in somewhat of an over, in, overly enthusiastic way, says, yep, that's absolutely right. It's in there. And the guy just sort of like, mm, okay, well, that, that settles that point. Obviously, he thought that was a point against the church and against the Book of Mormon to have that story in there. And of course, he's not completely alone in that, is he? So anyway, uh, I remember that, and I remember thinking that was an interesting incident that happened that had to do with this story, because this story is frequently frowned down upon, and for good reason. Because what happens here is that we have the hero of the story, Nephi, who needs something from another person, and he can't get that something, the brass plates, by asking for it. He can't get it by offering to pay for it. In other words, he can't get it by any legal means. But he really, really needs it. And so therefore, because he really, really needs it, he finds Laban in Jerusalem at night, drunk and passed out in the street. So what does he do? Well, he really, really needs those plates. So he starts arguing with the Lord because the spirit starts coming to him and telling him he needs to kill Laban. And there's this back and forth between Nephi and the spirit. And eventually Nephi does kill Laban. So here's the problem is that we have a person killing another person in an extra legal execution because he heard a voice and the voice told him that he needed to kill this person. Okay. That's problematic. And I hope it's obvious why that's problematic. Of course, from my point of view as a, a faithful Mormon, I would have said, yeah, but this voice really was from God. So it's okay. <laughs> you know, as, as long as the voices that are talking in your head are really from God, it's okay to kill people when they tell you to. Yeah, not that great an answer, I think. But that was that story. Oh, and then there's another great story about Hugh Nibley that he told when he was teaching his Book of Mormon class. This is his intro to Book of Mormon, his regular Book of Mormon class, not the advanced Book of Mormon class, but it's a requirement for all BYU students in their freshman year to take this course back when Hugh Nibley was teaching it. And he tells a story about how he was teaching in 1 Nephi chapter 4 and telling the story about uh, Nephi killing Laban in class. And in this particular class, there were a handful of young men from the Middle East who were sitting in the back of his class, and they were sort of chatting to each other during class, probably whispering and giggling and laughing. And Hugh Nibley was looking at that and going, yeah, I know what's going on. So he waits till after class, and he keeps these guys after class, and he wants to talk to them. And he says, 
okay, so why was it you guys were laughing during class when I was talking about Nephi, Kill, and Laban? And Hugh Nibley was fully expecting, as I probably would have been too, that it's going to be the, the normal reason, right? Like, this is ridiculous. Why would God command Nephi to kill Laban? And then why would Nephi follow through on it? But actually, they flipped the script because from their culture, according to the story by Hugh Nibley, and I've got no reason to doubt him on this, the reason that they were laughing was because they found it unbelievable, but not because of the reason that we tend to think, but because they said, there's no way that Nephi would have waited that long. He would have just cut his head off right away. He wouldn't have been arguing with the spirit. That's what made it unbelievable for them. So I think it is important to look at things from different contexts, from different vantage points. And that's something that surprised Hugh Nibley enough that he remembered to tell that later on. And I heard it and I'm repeating it for you today. Now, here's one of the problems, okay, is that with this story, if we take it literally, is that Nephi cuts Laban's head off. And generally, that would be associated with a great deal of blood spurting out of the carotid artery and getting everywhere on Laban, obviously on the on the street, on the, the stones of the street, if there were stones on the street, and probably all over Nephi. So here we've got this picture that I took from Macbeth. By the way, I am doing another podcast at the same time as this, uh, not recording it at the same time, but it's called Brush Up Your Shakespeare. And if you want to go and have a lot of fun with Shakespeare, brushupyourshakespeare.org is where you should go. And this is a line from Macbeth, which we're not doing right now, but it fits in here. Remember, Macbeth kills King Duncan while King Duncan is asleep under his own roof. And much later on, Macbeth's wife, Lady Macbeth, is remembering this in sort of a, a fevered dream while she's sleepwalking and she says yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him it's a shock yeah it is a shock for people who don't know how much blood is in a person even in an old man and even in laban who was probably not necessarily an old man then there was another story and another quote from hamlet now could i drink hot blood and i've got a picture there of conan the barbarian who's beheaded somebody. And yeah, there's a lot of blood there on his sword and on the ground. And the rest of that quote, by the way, from Hamlet is now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to look on. It's a great line from Hamlet. But the reason I include it is because if Nephi was going to keep all of Laban's blood from getting on him, from getting on Laban, from getting on Laban's armor, and we'll get to that in a second, he would have had to drink it all. <laughs> literally he would have had to drink that blood in order to keep it from splashing everywhere and even then i don't think it would have helped okay so the problem is let me just complete this thought is that nephi later puts on laban's armor in order to fool his servant zoram and unless this is all being done in complete blackness or if zoram is perhaps legally blind why wouldn't zoram see that this person who is supposed to be Laban is all covered in blood. Why? There's not really a good reason for that that's given in the scriptures. And so this is another reason why when we read this, we should probably think of this as something that is not meant to be taken literally. It is a story that doesn't make sense in the real world. 
And perhaps what we should look for, if we're trying to find lessons in it, maybe we should look elsewhere than the literality of the event. And honestly, the further we can get away from the literality of the event, I think the safer ground that we're going to be on. Now, why was it necessary to behead Laban? This is the question, right? Now, we know that Nephi, they'd asked for it nicely. He says, no, it's my brass plates for crying out loud. We would expect it to be pretty darn valuable at the time if they had brass plates and codexes, codices like are described here, which I don't think they did. There's no archaeological evidence they did. But if they did, it would be pretty valuable. And Nephi gives us plenty of reasons for killing Laban. Or should we call them self-justifications that Nephi is playing out in his head? Mostly amounting to Laban is a bad guy who stole our stuff and tried to kill us. And we really, really need those brass plates. Those are the justifications. They're quite basic. But then something happens a few chapters later that throws the whole episode into question. The whole episode of Nephi feeling he had to kill Laban, a defenseless Laban, in order to get his brass plates. And what is that? incident that happens a few chapters later well it involves another object made out of brass and i'm talking about the liahona now it's not called the liahona till alma we understand that but the object itself appears in first nephi chapter 16 and here's what it says in verse 10 i think you probably know the story and it came to pass that as my father arose in the morning went forth to the tent door to his great astonishment he beheld upon the ground a round ball of curious workmanship, and it was a fine brass. And within the ball were two spindles, and the one pointed the way whither we should go into the wilderness, etc. We all know the story. But the question this raises, and the dilemma this causes, is if God wanted Nephi and Lehi to have the brass plates, couldn't he have just made them appear on the ground outside the tent door after they'd left Jerusalem like he did with the Liahona. Well, because it's God we're talking about, we have to conclude that, yes, he could have done that. But that raises the question, then why didn't he? Why didn't he do that? Why does he have Nephi kill Laban to get the brass plates when we have a story that shows God could have just transported them and made them appear outside their tent when they were in the wilderness? It's a thought question. I don't have an answer for that, but it's a thought question. Which raises the question, and I apologize because I've gotten ahead of myself in my slides. I tend to do that. If God could make the brass Liahona appear out of nowhere in front of Lehi's tent after they were safely away from Jerusalem, why couldn't God have done the same thing with the brass plates? And there's another painting of Nephi right before he kills Laban, or it may be in process. It looks like either that's his red cape or it's blood. It's probably his red cape, which is a foreshadowing of the blood that's to follow. All right. Now, my mom used to say, Radio Free Mormon, she'd say, in this life, you can either be a good example or a horrible warning. And I think that we have been using Nephi as a good example, specifically in relation to this story, for too long. We've idolized him. He's the hero, which means that whatever he does, including this, has to be viewed through a heroic lens. It has to be a good thing that he did, and then we have to justify it. We are left having to justify the unjustifiable. And it is possible now, possible, that if we look at this story a little bit more closely, we can see that the text, 
the text of the entire Book of Mormon, by the way, not just this story, but the text supports the interpretation that this was not a good thing that Nephi did, that in fact, this was a very bad thing that he did. And the story is told not for us to emulate or justify, but as a warning to us that we should not do anything remotely similar to this, that this is a bad idea, that this is indeed a horrible warning. All right, now I'm going to put up on the screen a paper that I wrote. It's actually been 10 years ago, 10 years ago last month, to be exact, that I wrote this paper, and I'm going to read it for you or perform it for you at the end of this class, which is now. It'll probably be the last half of the class. It's a bit of a long paper. I think it's really good. I want to share it with you and share this alternate interpretation, which once again, is not done necessarily out of desperation, but I think the text supports it. I'll go through the paper. You can listen and make up your own mind. But it was titled, The Spirit That I Have Seen May Be the Devil. Nephi's slaying of Laban, and that quote is from Hamlet. And what I do is, 10 years ago, I was really very deep into the classics, uh, Greek tragedy, uh, Greek histories, um, Shakespeare, a number of things which I draw from in order to make this argument. And it may be a bit overdone. I don't know. I hope it's not pretentious, but here we go. Let me go to it here on my screen so that I can then scroll down through it. Here we go. Okay. So this was published on December 10th, 2013. So like I said, 10 years ago last month, and I have a picture of the Balrog there at the beginning from Lord of the Rings. The opening pages of the Book of Mormon, excuse me for a second. <clears throat> there we go. The opening pages of the Book of Mormon confront us with the most problematic story in the entire book, the murder of a defenseless Laban by a sword-wielding Nephi. We all know the story. Nephi has been commanded by God through his prophet father, Lehi, to obtain Laban's brass plates version of the Hebrew scriptures. Nephi and his brothers return to Jerusalem and try everything they can think of to get the plates with the result that Laban robs them of all their worldly possessions and tries to kill them. He's not a good guy. Nephi, not knowing what to do next, goes into Jerusalem by night, stumbles across Laban lying drunk in the gutter, and is constrained by the Spirit. That's the quote from the Book of Mormon. Constrained by the Spirit to kill Laban. Nephi resists the murderous injunction twice, but relents upon the third command, and, quote, smote off his head with his own sword. The traditional Mormon response to this grisly tale is to seek to justify Nephi in his murder, adopting the rationales Nephi himself gives to cover his deed. One, Laban had sought to kill Nephi. Two, Laban would not hearken to the commands of the Lord. Three, Laban had robbed Nephi of his property. Four, Nephi's posterity cannot keep the commandments unless they have the law of Moses engraved on the plates. And if they cannot keep the commandments, they will not prosper in the promised land. And five, it is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. That quote is from the Book of Mormon and is one of the justifications given for Nephi to finally relent and kill Laban. I remark here in a parent, uh, I make a parenthetical comment this last excuse, the one about it is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief, this last excuse is ironically footnoted in the 1981 LDS edition to Life, Sanctity of, 
In other words, the sanctity of life in the topical guide. Oh, nothing like having a story about killing somebody who's drunk and defenseless. Uh, footnoted to the sanctity of life in the topical guide. Not cross-referenced is the fact the same rationale was given by Caiaphas as the basis to kill Jesus Christ. When he said in John eleven fifty, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. That doesn't get cross-referenced for some reason. This should be our first indication, though, that something is wrong, that perhaps justifications are not in order, but rather a closer examination of the story, that possibly we find the story of Laban's murder troublesome because it is supposed to be troublesome. Certainly, Nephi is troubled. Why should we not be? Does the story teach that we should do whatever the Lord commands, even if it goes against everything we have been taught and everything we believe in? Is Laban an Isaac for whom no ram in the thicket was caught? Is Laban a wicked Messiah whose blood must be shed for the salvation of the Nephites? Or is something else at play? We are taken aback when a brass ball magically appears overnight in front of Lehi's tent after the departure from Jerusalem. If God could gift Lehi and company with a brass ball, why could he not have done the same with the brass plates? Was the murder of Laban necessary? Was it a loyalty test for Nephi? Did Nephi pass the test or did he fail? The next section is titled Murder Most Foul, also a reference to Hamlet. Nephi rationalizes his murder of Laban because Laban had tried to kill Nephi and had robbed Nephi of his property. But this is exactly what Nephi now does. Nephi murders Laban and robs him of his property. Not only does Nephi steal Laban's brass plates, but also his sword and servant. Is Nephi interested in more than the brass plates? Is cupidity for Laban's sword suggested by Nephi's rapturous description of its having a gold hilt, fine workmanship, and blade of most precious steel? Nephi does every wicked act of which he accuses Laban. In short, Nephi becomes Laban. The text emphasizes this transition of identity when Nephi puts on the garments of Laban, yea, even every wit, including his armor and sword. Nephi even speaks to Zoram in the voice of Laban. I spake unto him as if it had been Laban, 1 Nephi 4.23. Nephi seems constrained to speak of himself in the third person here. Not I spake unto him as if I had been Laban, but as if it had been Laban. So complete is Nephi's transformation that Zoram recognizes Nephi as Laban, as do Nephi's brothers outside the city walls, for they supposed it was Laban. Nephi murders Laban under cover of darkness, and it was by night. When evil deeds are wont to occur, as Hamlet puts it, tis now the very witching time of night, when churchyards yawn, and hell itself breathes out contagion to the world, to this world, excuse me. Now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to look on. The next section is titled The Curse of Nephi. 
But surely Nephi did the right thing in killing Laban. Did he not obtain the brass plates? Were not the plates necessary? Did not Nephi correctly conclude that his seed had to keep the commandments contained on the brass plates in order to prosper in the land of promise? But here's the rub. Nephi's seed is ultimately destroyed. And more than that, God curses Nephi with the knowledge of it. In response to Nephi's prayer to know the meaning of the dream of his father, the Lord opens up to Nephi a panoramic vision of the future of the world on both hemispheres. Nephi sees many things in chapters 11 through 14. He sees the baptism, ministry, and crucifixion of Jesus and the call of the 12 apostles in chapter 11, the righteousness and iniquity of his people, the appearance of Jesus to the Nephites, and the utter destruction of his own descendants at the hands of the Lamanites in chapter 12. The church of the devil set up among the Gentiles, the discovery of America, the loss of many plain and precious parts of the Bible, the restoration of the gospel, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and the building up of Zion. In chapter 13, there's a reason I'm going through all of these, and you'll see that here in just a second. Finally, the polarization of people into either the church of God or the church of the devil, the persecution of the saints by the great and abominable church, the destruction of the wicked in the last days, and the triumph of the righteous in chapter 14. The vision ends on an upbeat and glorious note. But what is Nephi's immediate reaction to the vision, to this overwhelming vision? What is the one thing that arrests his attention? It is the destruction of his descendants that he sees midway through the vision. This is First uh, Nephi 15.5. And it came to pass, Nephi speaking, that I was overcome because of my afflictions. For I considered that mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. That is his initial reaction after having this panoramic vision that takes four chapters, 11, 12, 13, and 14, and 15, verse 5, that's what he says. This is the exact right emotional note. In spite of all the wonderful things Nephi has seen, this is the fact on which he fixates. It is reminiscent of Adam's response to the vision he receives from Michael in Milton's Paradise Lost, in which Adam is shown the destruction of his posterity in the flood. So Nephi sees the destruction of his posterity in a vision. Michael sees the destruction of his posterity in a vision in Milton's Paradise Lost. And this is what Adam says. How didst thou, this is what is said about Adam, excuse me. How didst thou grieve then, Adam? to behold the end of all thy offspring, end so sad, depopulation, thee another flood of tears and sorrow, a flood thee also drowned, and sunk thee as thy sons, till gently reared by the angel, on thy, on thy feet thou stoodst at last, though comfortless, as when a father mourns his children, all in view destroyed at once. So we see in Paradise Lost how Adam feels when he beholds in vision the destruction of all of his descendants will save eight souls with uh, Noah's Ark. But still, pretty much everybody, yeah. And we can compare that then perhaps with how Nephi would have felt under the same circumstances and seeing in vision the destruction of all of his descendants. Adam's words upon seeing this vision are reminiscent of Nephi's. So here's what Adam says. O visions ill foreseen, 
Better had I lived ignorant of future, so had borne my part of evil only, each day's lot enough to bear. Those now that were dispensed the burden of many ages on me light at once, by my foreknowledge gaining birth abortive, to torment me ere their being with thought that they must be. Heavy stuff, heavy stuff indeed. And if we put ourselves in Nephi's shoes, he sees this entire vision. But the one thing that he fixates on is the destruction of his descendants that he sees. I think that was in chapter 12. It was early on. And yet that's the same thing that Adam goes through. This entire pain, this agony of knowing what will happen to his descendants. Why bother living in the first place if your descendants will all be cut off at some future date. As Adam must be gently reared by the angel upon seeing this calamity befall his posterity, so Nephi must receive strength before he can carry on, 1 Nephi 15, 6. As Adam is tormented with the thought that they must be, so is Nephi grieved because of the things which he had seen and knew that they must unavoidably come to pass. Nephi considers his afflictions great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. And well he might. What could be a greater and more miserable burden? I'm going to say that line again. What could be a greater and more miserable burden for Nephi to bear? And why does God choose? This is important. And why does God choose to curse Nephi with this foreknowledge? The text thrusts Nephi into the full irony of the situation. For upon returning to the tent after his vision, Nephi sees Laman and Lemuel arguing over the meaning of their father's words. It is these two brothers who have been unrighteous, who have murmured against the will of God from the beginning, who have fought against the divine directive at every turn. These are the two brothers who cannot understand the meaning of Lehi's words because they were hard in their hearts. Therefore, they did not look unto the Lord as they ought. First Nephi 15.3 And yet, it is their descendants who will survive. It is their descendants, Laman and Lemuel's descendants, who will survive, not Nephi's. This is similar to the disquieting moment when Macbeth learns that though he will be king, it is Banquo who will beget kings. What justice is there in this? Everything is turned on its head. Why should Nephi's descendants be the ones who are destroyed? Nephi is the one who has been faithful. Nephi is the one who speaks with God. Nephi is the one who has done everything that, lo that the Lord has asked. Nephi is the one who even murdered a man in cold blood because God insisted he do so. Hold that thought. Is there a connection? Nephi murders a man in cold blood and robs him of his possessions, effectively becoming the wicked Laban in word, dress, and deed. And it is Nephi who receives from God the greatest curse a person could have, that of witnessing the utter destruction of his posterity and knowing it must come to pass. It is a lesson in futility. After everything Nephi has done and will yet do to establish his people in a land of promise, it is all for nothing. We set out to save the Shire, Sam, Frodo tells his friend, and we did save it, but not for me. 
But is it also a lesson in consequences, in retribution, in balancing the scales? Does Nephi receive so great a curse because he commits so great a sin? These questions are ultimately unanswerable, but begin to raise the lid on the story of the slaying of Laban. And I might say, begin to raise the curtain on the story of the slaying of Laban as a dark fable of the human soul. The next section is called a spirit of health or goblin damned. The natural objection to this line of thought would be that it is the spirit of God that coerces Nephi to murder Laban. And how can it be wicked to do what is divinely commanded? Why should there be any retribution for doing what is right? What scales need balancing? This leads us, excuse me, this leads us to the more fundamental question of just who, if anyone, spoke to Nephi that bleak Jerusalem night. We know Nephi claims he was repeatedly commanded by the Spirit to do the deed, a command Nephi virtuously resisted. But we also know Nephi's account is replete with rationalizations for the murder. Might the narrative of the divine command be merely one more attempted justification on the part of Nephi? Put another way, the only account we have is from Nephi. We don't get to hear Laban's version, dead men tell no tales. If Nephi were on trial for Laban's murder, how might an impartial jury view his story, especially considering he is an admitted murderer and thief? Would it be reasonable to conclude that Nephi actually heard a voice commanding him to kill? And assured, excuse me, and assuming he really did hear a voice, how is it Nephi can so positively identify it as coming from God? Here it might be noted the voice is identified throughout the narrative only as the Spirit, never as the Spirit of God. Just who is this Spirit anyway? The reader is confronted with Hamlet's dilemma, even if Nephi appears not to recognize the issue. Hamlet also is confronted by a spirit in the likeness of his father, who commands Hamlet to kill the new king, Hamlet's uncle. But Hamlet is not sure the spirit is who it claims to be. Is it a spirit of health or, that should be an or, is it a spirit of health or goblin damned? Or as Hamlet later more fully soliloquizes, the spirit that I have seen may be the devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent, with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. Has Nephi been deceived by a spirit that assumed a pleasing shape? Was the spirit that led him and spoke to him that night, a spirit that is never positively identified as being of God, really from God at all? It was Joseph Smith who was reputed to have said, some revelations are of God, some are of men, and some are of the devil. Is the story of Laban's murder a parable? about spiritual discernment, and how even the righteous may be deceived. But what if Nephi was correct in attributing his guiding spirit to God? Is it possible that God would direct Nephi to murder Laban and then harshly punish him for doing as commanded? One is reminded of the lying spirit. The Lord sent his prophets to entice Ahab to go to battle so that he might be slain 
You'll find that story in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Or the false dream, Zeus sent Agamemnon, urging him to a premature attack on Troy with lying promises of victory. And that's in the Iliad, book 2, lines 1 through 20. Is the spirit that spoke to Nephi a lying spirit sent from God? The last possibility to be considered is the most troubling and the most profound, that Nephi was led by a true spirit of God in murdering Laban, and that it is for obeying the voice of God's spirit that Nephi's life is so onerously blighted by a vision of his posterity's destruction. Here we enter upon the ancient soil of Greek tragedy. In the Orestia trilogy of plays by Aeschylus, Orestes is the son of Agamemnon, who must avenge his father's murder at the hands of his mother, Clytemnestra. As Rex Warner says in his introduction to the Orestia, we are again involved in incompatibilities, logical and emotional. It is right to kill one's father's murderer. It is wrong to kill one's mother. And yet he has to choose. Orestes has to choose one or the other. Orestes has been instructed by Apollo, the interpreter of Zeus, to do something that is both right and wrong. But upon slaying his mother at the end of the second play, Orestes is pursued by other divine beings, the Furies, who are his mother's avengers, themselves seeking retribution. The problem is this. Orestes has acted as Apollo ordered him to act. He is then punished for his actions by other divine powers. Can the gods be double-faced? Can there be two opposite divine views on the same point? Aeschylus boldly answers, yes. Is the question at the heart of the Orestia the same as at the heart of the Book of Mormon? Can one who is loyal to God in the extreme also receive the cursing of God in the extreme? Is this the ultimate example of bad things happening to good people? Is it an instance of how Tennyson has Guinevere portray Arthur? He is all fault who hath no fault at all. Is it an example of Stephen King's observation, God is cruel, sometimes he makes you live? Is it a morality tale of the perils of unquestioning obedience, even when such obedience contravenes one's core principles? Is this a lesson other Mormons had to learn on a late summer's day in 1857 at a place called Mountain Meadows? Does the tale of the slaying of Laban plumb the depths of the human experience, where evil is often returned for good and cursing for faithfulness? Should the first book in the Nephite record be subtitled The Tragedy of Nephi? Does it serve as a second witness with Job to the inscrutability of fate and the universality of the mystery of God? And lastly, does it stand as a testament to the proposition that whereas we may not understand the dealings of God in what we frequently find to be a hard, cold cosmos, at least we are not alone in our plight. If the Book of Mormon stands for any of these propositions, it is a book well worth the reading well worth the pondering, and perhaps well worth the fearing. And that concludes my article about the Book of Mormon and the slaying of Laban 
that was published 10 years ago and one month. So that's what we have there for today's lesson. It looks like we're at 47 minutes and 55 seconds. Yes, we're at 48 minutes and mark. So we'll have a closing prayer given by somebody in the audience, but that's all we have here at Radio Free Mormon and Mormon Sunday School. Please hit like, please hit subscribe, please share this with your friends and family, and we will be back here next week with lesson number three in the Come Follow Me manual on the Book of Mormon. I hope you'll join me here at Mormon Sunday School, where you're going to learn more than you'll ever hear in regular Sunday School. That's all for tonight. Thanks again.